Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. The Splendid Isolation series is over, and we are back to regular episodes. Today on the show is John Champion from the Mission Log podcast and other shows from Roddenberry Entertainment. We're going to talk about the recently concluded Star Trek Picard, what we liked, what we may have had issues with, the changes to the Mission Log pod when they changed co-hosts, other Star Trek stuff, plus a lot about 60 spy stuff that John loves about as much as I do. Because this is episode 86, we talk about Get Smart Naturally. We also talk about Man from Uncle and Wild Wild West due to the somewhat recent passing of Robert Conrad. We also talk about the Avengers and some Bond stuff due to the recent death of Honor Blackman. We also talk about a bunch of other British shows of the genre, including Danger Man and The Prisoner, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, Department S, Jason King. And we talk about the wonderful connection between Jason King, Peter Weingard, and the 1970s X-Men. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Once the new Star Trek Picard series wrapped up, I knew I had to invite our next guest back on the show to discuss it, all things Trek, and his other love, old school spy stuff. I'm happy to welcome back to the pod, Mission Logs, John Champion. How's it going, John? Hey, good. That's my middle name, old school spy stuff. <laughs> that'll uh, that'll go on my tombstone. I'll go on my business card. I like it. I was going to say, uh, one of the things we had talked about about the, what to talk about on the show is, and we'll get to it eventually, is the fact there's all this stuff that I think we are close to the same age. So there was all this stuff, especially British stuff, that you would only read about in books or, or magazines that you know we had no hope of ever seeing here. And now you can find just about anything on the Internet. So it's really fun now to go back. And watch stuff that, you know, it's like we all got to see, you know, the Avengers and the Saint, whatnot, you know, pretty much since they debuted. But some of the other stuff was sort of lost to time until now. And I think it's really great that, like, people like us who love that kind of stuff can go back and watch it. Yeah. And, you know, even then, you know, I, I remember going to conventions in the 80s and early 90s and hearing about shows like hearing about the man from uncle hearing about the prisoner hearing about well the the avengers was a little easier to find uh but not a great breadth of it and it was frustrating because as a kid you're just trying to catch as catch can like you you'd hear about it from somebody you might see an article in Starlog or somewhere and then you're hoping that some little, you know, UHF channel or some small cable network will start playing those shows again. Now we almost have it too good where you can just hop on the Internet and find just about anything, um, although that makes you greedy. Like, you know, it's like, OK, well, I, I have those shows. Why don't I have this other one? <laughs> why, you know, why don't I have the complete series of this other one. So it's, yeah, it was a little strange. Well, I remember for me, the one when I was like an early teen, like preteen or teenagers getting into stuff is that during that time, almost everybody, sh at least some stations, most cities showed Batman, but hardly mm -hmm. anybody showed Green Hornet. Right. And yeah. So, That's a good example. Yeah. There, were, there weren't that many Green Hornet made, but. Yeah, the, the, they were much harder to find. Because I don't think I saw them, other than sort of the occasional weird one-off, until I guess when they got put on FX in the in the 90s, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think they may have been the first time I got to see it, like, see the whole series. Right. But, and that was, I mean, I think we talked, we may have talked about this last time, but, you know, that was, I think, FX may have been like the first time in a long time that uh, people got to see Mission Impossible again, and that was sure. probably and that was probably only because of the movie. Otherwise, because yeah, I right. remember it being on, 
you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, and then it disappeared for the longest time out of syndication. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then you had that late 80s yeah, the, revival of Mission Impossible, which, which was good in its way. I mean, it, it doesn't hold up as well, um, but that sparked a little interest. So, you know, you, you could roughly find the original around there. But, yeah, it was just like, – it was a different – time and it was a lot harder to find stuff like that so i remember this sort of particularly at conventions this kind of underground vhs trade of uh people who had some great shows or what i did at the time if i couldn't find what i was looking for there um i had family members who i remember i, I had an aunt in florida who um some you know some uhs station down there was showing whatever it was i wanted to watch and she would send me videotapes they're still somewhere at my parents' house. I'm kind of curious because I could go back and see these commercials from the 80s around, you know, whatever I was watching at the time, at Galactica or whatever else. I think there's a couple of shows that I still have that I remember that I don't know. You may know, you may know this um, mm -hmm. as we delay getting to the actual meat of the show. <laughs> but uh, the show that I'm really curious to, to see now because one, it was short-lived, and two, because of the cast, is mm -hmm. Mas is Masquerade, the show huh. with with Rod Taylor and Greg Evigan and Kirstie Alley. Wow! Wait, yeah. So I, I I don't remember the show, but for some reason I remember like a promo picture of them. Yeah, because that's the, a hell of a the, cast. The, the, it's funny the, because I guess he would have been. Because this, I think, is like 84, 85. So he's, mm -hmm. in, I mean, among other things, he's post-BJ and the Bear and pre-My Two Dads. And sure. Kirstie is probably post-Star Trek, but right. pre-Cheers. Pre-Cheers, yeah. But yeah, yeah, the premise of the show was they worked for your generic alphabet American spy agency. Mm -hmm. But I think the gimmick was... They recruited regular people to help them fulfill their mission. So in mm. a way, it was kind of Mission Possibly like. And I think the hook of the show was it was actually filmed on location in Europe because the premise of the show they were like they were a they were a tour company. Okay, like a vacation tour company. So that gave them the excuse to be to drive you know to be around all these places in Europe. Right. And then while they were in fictitious Eastern European country A, you know, they would, oh, we happen to have this doctor who was, you know, I know this was a great Mission Impossible, you know, uh, at the time a, a surgeon that was one of the few people in the world that knew how to do a certain kind of procedure that they needed to save a dissident that was behind the Iron Curtain because he was ill and the evil regime, you know, probably headed by Theodore Bakel wanted to, you know, take him out or something and they had to sneak him out of the country or thing. You know, your sure. classic your classic Mission Impossible plot. Right, right. Exactly. Anyway, but uh before we get to the spy stuff, we want to talk about Picard. Um from your from the feedback that you guys got at Mission Log Mm -hmm. um, what was the overall impression of the Star Trek community towards Picard? I really liked parts of it and didn't like other parts, but on the whole, I was certainly happy to watch it. What was the general consensus that you heard? Uh, well, I think you are very representative of that general consensus. You know, I, I think... You know, right out of the gate, people are just excited to see Patrick Stewart back. They're excited to see Picard. They're excited to see what this world is like 25 years after we last saw him. Um, but I, I also am really sympathetic to the criticisms that people had about that show. Um, I like the idea that they took on some really big topics. I, I like the idea that they didn't shy away from his aging. I like that they gave a lot of complexity and texture to that world that he's in. Um, I like that data wasn't just a gimmick. It, it wasn't just, you know, 
Picard, the search for data. It, it was something a little more emotional than that. It, it, it was something a little more um, esoteric than that. Um, I don't love all the decisions that they made. I can definitely say that. Um, I, I was, I was glad that they let their characters be flawed, but I also didn't need them to all be flawed all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, a little, a little redemption every now and then is great or working through a problem is great. Um, I, I kind of don't like the idea that you just sort of introduce, okay, well, well, here's another problem and we're, we're just going to let that stay there for the rest of the the season um you know there has to be a better balance between maybe the unrealistic uh kind of perfection that a lot of people criticize next generation for and the lean toward uh i i mean it's not dystopian to me but the the lean toward this um kind of darker version of the Trek universe. I'm not sure I know exactly what that balance is, but I, I don't know if, if it has been hit exactly for me yet. Yeah. I mean, I sampled discovery and decided that wasn't for me. And mm -hmm. one of those reasons I think was, I think also evident here where it's like, can we have some, some officer in the Federation that is not part of a secret society or a cabal or a double agent. It's just like, yeah, I, it's, I, I know that, uh, I know you guys on mission log are sort of right in the heart of the, uh, D space nine. Yeah. But I mean, I remember watching that at the time. That was the first time that we really, really started getting sort of the dark, the dark underbelly, like it's you know, would occasionally get it in in Next Generation, but mm -hmm. D Space Nine is sort of when it really started, and you know continued on, and it's like, you know, I'm one of those people. I know you guys, you know, said it on the pod over the years. It's like mm -hmm. I don't need I don't need there to be a Federation black ops CIA whatever. I certainly yeah. don't need the head of the Federation security to turn out to be a Romulan double agent. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Well, it's yeah. I mean, that, that was a problem of mine with discovery is that you bring in Pike and he's wonderful. I mean, Anson Mount just knocked it out of the park as Pike, but you're left with this idea like, Oh, oh okay. Other than Kirk who has yet to be on the scene, Pike is like the one upstanding, <laughs> the one representative of the best of humanity. I mean, Admiral Cornwell basically says that. She says, oh, okay, well, during the Klingon War, the reason you weren't fighting it is because we feared that if we all perished, then the best and the brightest would still be here, meaning him. And it's like, really? that that That's the future? That's the 23rd century of Star Trek is there's one guy who's the good guy and everybody else is just sort of resigned themselves to be mired in the, the horror of war and how that stripped away their humanity. That's a terrible message. It's you know, and, and look, TOS and next gen did this thing where they would, um, you know, you'd bring in the bad role or you'd bring in um, some, some corruption or, or some negative force within the institutions of Starfleet or uh, the Federation. But those were outliers. The, those were those were lessons to us to be vigilant about making sure that we keep our institutions accountable, not just sort of to throw up our hands and say, well, it's corrupt from the top down, <laughs> you know. So, um I, uh, I, I, I've got some very mixed feelings about it because all those negative things said, I think that when they are hitting these positive messages, when they are hitting great character moments, I think they're hitting them very well. And I also think that they are well-produced shows or well-acted shows or well-made shows. Um, but I, I don't know that I have found the one thing yet 
that has gotten me as sort of tuned in to Star Trek, especially the morals, meanings, messages, as uh, as TOS or Next Gen did. Yeah, to me, the because I know friends who I tried to con- old school fans that are just sort of done with New Trek, which I sort of end too. But I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, there are pockets of this show that I think you don't want to, even if you have misgivings about some of the things that we're talking about. I said yeah. at least watch the episode with Riker and Troy, which to me was the highlight mm-hmm. of the, was the highlight of the series. Because, yeah. you, you know, that's, I mean, it's like you can feel the warmth, you know, that yep. comes through between the actors. And so even if it had been an okay episode, it would have been cool for the reunion. But, you know, that really hit it out of the park. Right. Well, and, and look, here's the thing. That episode is, I, I agree, it's very memorable. Um, I do have to ask myself, does that episode work because it plays to what you and I want, which is this reunion that we've anticipated for years and years, or does it work just purely on its own merits? I, I, I think, I hope that it does because they, they sold the, um, the, the truth of the emotion in those scenes. So I, I think that helps it. I also have to ask myself, well, does it really serve the overall story of Picard? Or was it just this nice diversion? I think it does both, but it's really less about it's less about Riker and Troy than it is about you know kind of putting Picard in his place, just to to make sure because he has some great scenes, particularly with Deanna, where she just sort of like lays it all out for him. It's like, no, you can't be this guy that you think you need to be. You you have to be the one that we all want. You have to be the one who. Um, uh, who who we expected from being the captain of the Enterprise. Yeah, and I think one of the things the show wisely did was not, even though, like you said, the overall theme, really, of the first season was at its core about data and robotics and humanity. But, you know, we did not, even with the other cameos that we had, we did, we were not... We did not see a new, or we did not see an Enterprise cast member every week. He did not check in with everybody. Mm-hmm. So you know the fact that we got Riker and Troy in one episode, then we got Seven of Nine in a couple, and we got Hugh, which was cool since I don't think people would have predicted that one. You yeah. know, we would have all been like, which members of the crew are going to be in this episode, or are going to be in the series? And mm-hmm. I don't think people would have guessed. Hugh would have been one of them. Right. You know, I don't yeah, think we would I, have, yeah, we wouldn't have expected a callback to Dr. Bruce Maddox, even though, unfortunately, it wasn't the same actor, you know, yeah. on, a, on a certain level, it doesn't matter, but it would have been cool. But, you know, we did not see everybody. One, yeah, and, and I think those were earned choices. You know, that, that's what I liked about it. Those were earned choices about what served the story. So I, I was glad if it had just been a reunion show, then so what? They they could have done that on, you know, in any other venue. They could have done that on a late night talk show if that's all we wanted was a reunion. And, of course, there's always season two. So you figure, you know, we've now checked off a certain number of people that leaves some others to go, mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, we see them or not. We at least know it's possible that will give us something to look forward to or right. spec or speculate about right. while probably keeping, you know, I would imagine much of the new cast I would imagine would be, would probably be back. I, I would expect, but yeah, you don't, you I, I mean, it, it, it depends sure. on the story. It depends on the story. You know, I would like to see some of them back, but uh, others I'm just like, well, you know, do they really serve what needs to be said? And uh, that remains until we get into that story. I mean, I did not have any problems with, like, the actress herself. But, you know, if I do not, if I do not ever hear Picard called JL again, oh, that yeah. would that that would suit me just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I 
again, that's, that's the, one of the, yeah, that, that's one of those things that I think you get, you can get away with that once. You, you can have a character say that once to just establish kind of what their relationship is, but it seems so artificial, so forced that every other line out of Raffi's mouth, JL this, JL that, hey JL, like, I don't talk to anybody that I know, certainly that I'm in the same room with <laughs> by saying their name that often. And just the fact of it's like, okay, the fact that we've never saw any of the other people who he presumably was closer with over the years, never, you know, again, we don't know their whole history, but it was just, that's one yeah. of those little itty bitty things that just, Annoyed me, and then, you know, again, we were talking about sort of playing the speculation game. It's, yeah, you know, like I was, like, from the very first episode, I kept saying, where's Lol? Is Lol going to show up? You know, right. and never, and then we started, and then we got to, you know, the second Dr. Sung, and then it's like, well, we know Lore shouldn't be in this. Yeah. But. <laughs> right. You never know. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. once you got to the, the, the MacGuffin slash Chekhov's gun of this new artificial body. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, and it's like, oh, dear. But, yeah. you know, but I think that was – that whole thing still, I don't know how people reacted on your show, but the whole – like, I think we had all probably forgotten about the whole – disease thing since that was so early in the season but the mm -hmm. fact that they bring it back up again and then they introduce this new android body i think i certainly had that groan of oh no right right yeah no i i i think a lot of people did and uh, it i think the other problem with that is that then you completely diminish the impact of picard's death is quote unquote death in that scene um because we knew, okay, well, let, let's see. Let, let's look at our watches and see how much longer is left in the episode. Well, we are at the end of the season, and there's a body laying there, and we've already talked about how you can transfer a consciousness. So we've already set that up way ahead of time. It was a lot less impactful than, say, in 1982, seeing Spock die, and then having to wait a couple of years before you realize, like, oh, or are, are they going to bring him back <laughs> you know we just saw him die and now i've got months and months to contemplate what that means and what their next steps are well this is i think i think this has been a problem in recent some recent genre fiction most notably i don't know um if you've been a modern doctor who watcher but uh, I'm not caught up, but yeah, well, I, mean, I, I watched well, a, a decent amount of it. Yeah. The, the thing I was going to say is that in the the first Christopher Eccleston season, Stephen Moffat wrote an episode, and the whole premise of the episode was everybody lives, like yeah, everybody gets right. saved, which the first time he did it was great. And then once he became showrunner, mm -hmm. that one of the things... I, on the whole, liked Moffat's era, but mm -hmm. one of the things that I grew to really dislike about his stuff is the whole, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too, whereas I'm going to have a main character perform an incredibly heroic death, and then 10 minutes later I'm going to tell you why that didn't actually happen, yeah. whether it's right. time travel or subdiffuge or because it was like they killed off Rory and that was a really big deal. And then it turned out, Oh wait, he was an Android and he lived yeah. another hundred thousand years. Right. It was like they killed Jenna Coleman at the end of the one seat in the Christmas episode. And then, Oh, uh -huh. she's not dead after all. And, you yeah. know, and then she's, and then she, she's dead, but not dead again. And it's just like, and even you get the one episode, where Capaldi kills, if theoretically kills himself an infinite number of times in order to beat that trap he was in, uh, which yeah, is, which is which I remember at the time talking to you guys and saying, because I know this is something you had brought up 
on the show over the years about what does the transporter really do? And then in that Doctor Who episode, he's basically using the transformer to constantly resurrect himself until he beats this puzzle. Yeah. And, And I got to the point where it's like, you know, you can't have a heroic death and then fudge it right after that. And yeah. so that was what that that was the feeling I got at the end of Picard, where I'm like, oh no, we got a Moffat death here. Sure. Yeah. I mean that that's why I really respect what Joss Whedon does. You know, I loved Firefly and I loved the movie Serenity, and. You know, not going to spoil it, but the deaths in that have impact because they're final. You know, they're they're shocking as they should be, and they're really sad because they should be. But it gives weight and sincerity to the world that they're in. You know, the the problem with Star Trek isn't that they do those kinds of things. The problem is that when they're not earned. I think that's a huge problem. And then when you repeat those same patterns because you think, well, that's what the audience wants. You know, it's sort of just a a manufactured piece of drama as opposed to just letting the story unfold. But, yeah, I agree. And like I said, I think certainly on the whole, it was a very worthwhile the season was a worthwhile exercise and I'm certainly going to be interested to see where they move forward with Mm -hmm. the next season and this whole new, you know, you know, and luckily they did not get, I mean, it would have been stupid to give him sort of a perfect body because you're still going to have X year old Patrick Stewart now having to play a perfect, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, we, it has your age, it has your, you know, does he still have his his bad heart? You know, does his robot have yeah. the, the robot that, you know, the heart that got stabbed that... No, they, they said that he has... Uh, uh, the, the heart is as real as that golem is, so it's manufactured like the rest of his body, but he doesn't have an artificial heart on top of that, and it's not a defective heart the way that his originally was. Well, not defective stabbed you know because we saw what happened we saw what happened to picard when he did not have when he was not stabbed through the heart yeah right (laughs) he wasn't he wasn't picard yeah yeah but uh so since we've talked about michelin a couple times you guys had a big change at the beginning of the year when you changed uh co-hosts so Mm -hmm. how's how's mission log 2.0 been since the changeover uh, I, I honestly pretty great. You know, I I know that Rod and I both had some concerns, some anxiety about this, you know, way back when we first started kind of kicking around what the next steps would be. And honestly, that audition and interview process took a long time. It was a lot of work um, it, just because it, it's not it's not as simple as somebody throws her hat into the ring. Well, somebody throws her hat into the ring, but then you have to sort of figure out who that person is and look at their body of work and then do an interview and then record a sample show and maybe you need to record another sample show. You know, there's all these steps that go into it. So every time one person would email us, it was like, oh, okay, well, this one person, this is probably going to take a good five or six hours. Like this is nearly a full work day just to figure out if this is going to work. Um, but that said, it was a, it was a fun process. It was, it was an invigorating process and every step of the way, I just felt like, uh, you know, the closer and closer we got to it, I just felt like, you know what, change, change is good. Change is valuable. And we have to, embrace the positive aspects of that, whether it was uh, Ken moving on and doing something or me moving on and doing something else. Um, The show we've just always felt very confident has a rock solid foundation. It's got a format that works no matter what. 
And it's just a matter of saying, okay, do the people that I plug into those roles, do they have some integrity and hopefully a little a little radio presence and a sense of humor and a desire to take this seriously? Um, Norman was somebody who I've known for a long time. He has been a podcaster for a long time. But we had never worked together. And honestly, the more I talked to him over the years, I felt like, oh, there's no way he'll want to do this. And I even I, reluctantly, I just I, I said at some point uh, along the way, I was like, hey, I don't know if you've heard, but you know, I'm looking for a new co-host for uh, Mission Log. And I know you're really busy. And I know you don't necessarily want to do another podcast. And I know that you've been sort of waning in your Star Trek fandom. Not not that he wasn't a fan. It's just that he, he sort of he needed to take a little time away from it. I, I was like, for all those reasons, I get it if you don't want to throw your hat into the ring. But if you do want to throw your hat into the ring, here's what I'm doing. So let me know. And we probably went back and forth for a couple of weeks before he even said, sure, you know, let's let's do a sample. And um, there were a lot of really good people that I interviewed and did demo shows with, just awesome people. Um, and I would say it came down to like a final three, maybe five that we felt strongly about. And what it kept coming back to is Rod saying, you know, Norman's different. And, and that's what we want. We, we don't want to try to force anybody to play somebody else's role. Norman is different, but he feels like he's been there from the beginning. He just slipped right into the format of the show. He slipped right into the type of conversation that we wanted to have. So um, couldn't be happier with it. You know, it, it, it's always going to be a challenge when you you've had a team together for a long time and you've kind of found a pattern that works for you. But guess what? Now we get to find new patterns and that's been a cool and rewarding process too. Yeah. The, the only thing that I was sort of sorry about was since we talked about some of the stuff that was in Picard mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff uh, about robotics and identity and things like that is stuff that you guys had talked about over the years when Ken was still on the show. Mm -hmm. And it's the mm -hmm. kind of thing where it would have been interesting to hear you guys discuss some of that. Cause I jokingly said they brought back Bruce Maddox and I, <laughs> I tweeted you guys at the time. and I said, Bruce Maddox, what about Roger Corby? Yeah. It's right. like <laughs> if anybody should have been name dropped, it's, it's Ken's yeah. old friend put me in a robot body, Roger Corby. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and honestly, you know, Ken and I talk all the time, but um, we, we haven't really talked about Picard. And I wouldn't blame him if he wanted to take a little time off from Star Trek just because, I mean, look, he, he's got other podcasts to deal with. Some of those, well, most of those daily. He's got a lot of work on his plate. So I didn't want to throw kind of the old workload at him again, but I'm sure that someday we'll talk about it. Um, yeah. If, uh, if his views on that hasn't changed, he would be like, Oh, Hey, you, you've got this golem and you can transfer my conscience. Great. Let's do it. Sign me up. Yeah. And I don't think he's entirely wrong there. The, uh, like this, the other thing we were going to talk about is is old school spy stuff, and um, I did not realize I mentioned this to you briefly in passing that I was doing the layout for the show, and I realized that all the things that we had talked about, and then I noticed that this was going to be episode eighty six, and I was like, <laughs> well, then I guess we need a token mention of get smart at least in passing. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. um. I know you said that that's not one of your strong suits, but I just remember as a kid, you know, that it was funny watching it, yeah. you know, in reruns and not really understanding until I was at least a teenager, maybe once I was in college studying film and I went, hey, this show was created by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry. Yeah. And I'm like, 
how could this show not, I mean, admittedly, you know, they didn't run it. They weren't the showrunners. But right. still, it's like, with a pedigree like that, it's no wonder, at, at least in the early stages of it, the show was as whip-smart funny as it was. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, look, I, I usually think that uh, Mel Brooks and Buck Henry can do no wrong. So that that pedigree alone is pretty awesome. And and I do actually I have the complete box set of Get Smart on DVD. I just I haven't gone through it with the uh, the thoroughness that I have reserved for other shows. Um, but it's got like it, it's one of those shows where whether it's the real James Bond movies or the James Bond parodies or whatever, those, those ideas, those iconic uh, sort of moments or props or situations work their way into the pop culture. Even if you haven't seen a show, like you know that when somebody, you know, uses a shoe phone, okay, that that's from Get Smart. That that is what that came from. And I was just watching some. Oh, oh, of course, our man Bashir in uh, in DS Nine season four. You know, we just did that show not long ago, and um, and we just kind of looked at it and thought, oh man, you know, every single reference in this, it is too much to go through on the podcast. And sure enough, in that, you know, they're not necessarily doing Get Smart. They're just doing the entire spy genre. And sure enough, he's got part of his gun in the shoe at the end. So just by taking off a shoe and opening up the secret compartment and do it like, yeah, of course, of course. This is the way that spy parodies work. And and this all goes back to that mid-60s kind of golden age of uh, of those shows. Well, the, the impressive thing about Get Smart is, too, that the spy craze – was sort of so explosive that mm-hmm. you get get smart by the mid to late sixties. You're already you've already reached the parody stage of the trope. Yeah, that really had only started, you know, in like sixty one or sixty two. That it, you know, it exploded. So it's when you look at the comparable example, which would probably be the western. Mm-hmm. You know, you had mm-hmm. the point where in the because. This is something I wrote about uh, in grad school, so it's still some of it's sort of still fresh in my memory, even though it's been 20 years ago. But there were so many westerns; it was like there were like two dozen or three dozen westerns on at the peak, like in the late 50s and early 60s. That, but it was a slow decline. I mean, yeah. you did not. I mean, you didn't get F Troop until 66. So you had gone through almost an entire decade of the Westerns being taken relatively seriously. I mean, I guess you had Maverick, which was sort of lighthearted, but wasn't yeah. really a par- you know, it wasn't like F Troop. Whereas right. gets you know, Get Smart or Get Smart is only like four or five years after Doctor No. Right. So right. it's and then and by then, you know, you're also starting to get some of the weird variations whereas uncle is pretty much straight with comedy and then you get well it it was it wasn't one season i mean man from uncle started as a a tv alternative to james bond and they absolutely played it straight i mean you've got people like joe dante directing he did a, a bang up job on that and those first couple of seasons they took seriously third season they went the batman route and there are some good episodes in the third season, but that's where it turned into comedy. Then the fourth season, they were like, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> so we need to go back to our roots and, and, and go back to making this a uh, not not serious, uh, but a um, a lighthearted take you know you weren't going to have the death that you had in a James Bond movie, uh, but they they were serious about the world that they were in. You know? No, but then, yeah. but that segues in, you know, one of the things we want to talk about is the sort of in-between Get Smart and Uncle mm-hmm. is, you know, is arguably Wild Wild West. Sure, which, yeah. You know, which was nominally straight, but fantastical, I guess. Yeah, maybe right, the best, right. The best way of saying, I guess, and maybe lurid, but not, not lurid, not in a negative way, but 
the colors are so much bright. You know, even when Uncle got the color, but like yeah, Wild yeah. Wild West was so vivid. Yes, you know, it, and it absolutely was. And the, yeah, and the villains were, you know, you start with Doctor Loveless, and you know, you move on to Victor Biono and the couple of the recurring ones, and then you know when you start reading some of the episode guides and you look, and I think we talked, we may have briefly mentioned this when you were on before because we were talking about Martin Landau Mm -hmm. and you have like the vampire episode and you're like, (laughs) is like, is he a real, you know? And which is funny because he had been in, I think like an earlier, I think he had been in one of the black and white seasons of Wild Wild West when he was a pretty straightforward bad guy. Yeah. So yeah, I, Wild Wild West is sort of a, a very unique anomaly among those shows. So it makes total sense. It makes absolute, uh, you know, right time, right place. Westerns are huge. Spy craze is huge. TV has a lot of creativity at that time. We're we're starting to find a a maturity and sort of an experimental bent in TV. So it is totally the right show at the right time, but there's really nothing else like it. It, it, It's a spy show, but it's a little bit not not parody, not like jokey parody, but fantastical, as you so well put. Um, And, you know, at the same time, making a Western, let alone a highly stylized Western is uh, is a huge production challenge, you know. It, it, you've got to create everything sort of uh, out of whole cloth. You know, you can't just run down the street in downtown L.A. and go like, oh, okay, we're just going to shoot here for the day. Like, uh, no, you, you've got to you've got to make everything fit in that world. But they at least still had the like we were talking about the westerns. That since mm-hmm. it's it's both. It was a western and a spy show. Yeah, that that yeah. you still had so many practical Western sets available to them. Sure, you know yeah. whether they were on the lot or, yeah, you know as you know as a veteran of '60s television watching, especially genre mm-hmm. television watching, there are places in those shows that you recognize, either from real life or you've seen them so many times in, you know, like we said. You know, how many times did Star Trek, did TOS shoot at a certain place on location that, yeah. you know, that... I mean, it, it's the beauty of that time when studios still had backlots <laughs> and, you know, one week it's Mayberry and the next week it's on Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I love that. Or, hey, we're going to do an old, we're going to do a Roaring Twenties episode. Yeah. Well, luckily we shot, we shoot. Right in, the, we shoot in the next lot over from the Untouchables. Yeah. So yeah. we can borrow their set and their props and their suits and their cars and their guns and everybody's, you know, it's certainly saved on the budget if nothing else. Truly, yeah. But since we're talking about Wawa, because I think one of the times we had talked recently about doing a show was after is was after Conrad died and just mm-hmm. how perfect he was as Jim West in that on that show. Yeah, and looked magnificent doing it. Like that that's another thing about the style of that show that uh, that I like is that yeah, it's the it's the old west, but it's the fantastical version of the old west. So you have these western inspired clothes but tailored like 1960s. And he he just absolutely fit that heroic mold. Looked fantastic doing it. He was the perfect um, you know, James Bond ish uh, Western TV hero <laughs> that we needed. And then when you learn after the fact, when you watch it now and you know that he did almost all of his own stunts. Yeah. For somebody smaller than your average leading man makes it even more impressive when you watch it. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Yeah. The, uh, the other spy death that will, talk about to segue is was honor blackman passed away a few weeks ago and there's somebody who had spy tv credentials and of course arguably the most famous james bond girl 
with certainly the most famous James Bond girl name, I guess. The one that <laughs> right. the one that started it all, probably. Yeah, yeah. It, it's still kind of amazing that in 1964 uh, they could get away with a character called Pussy Galore, and yet there she was. You know, uh, that's uh, the first James Bond movie I really remember seeing was The Spy Who Loved Me. But shortly after, as I got introduced to the Connery movies on VHS and, you know, seeing them on TV, uh, Goldfinger was and remains to me a standout, you know, the, the pinnacle of the Sean Connery era. And she is just so memorable and so tough, so great. And that was how I knew her. And it was one of those things much later because again we're talking about the availability of classic tv when you and i were teenagers that it was sort of like wait a minute there was somebody on the avengers before emma peel before diana riggs emma peel wait and it was a bond girl too it was uh honor blackman as kathy gale so that that became a whole other thing like oh well i have to see those because she's already so cool as pussy galore I've got to see her on the Avengers and she's just as tough and awesome in that as she ever was. Yeah. It's because the, th the way I remember, cause I think the Avengers may have been on here on PBS when I was a teen or close to it. Mm -hmm. I don't, it certainly wasn't in syndication, but I think maybe they only showed the Diana rig yeah. episodes then, so yeah, I, I know even... where I was. Uh, they, they only showed the Diana Rigg episodes. I mean, yeah. it was sort of like how you really only saw, like, John Pertwee and Tom Baker Doctor Who's then. Right. And then later, yep. and then the ones that came afterwards. Like, I remember it was a big deal, like, after I had been watching Doctor Who for, like, four or five years on PBS, and then suddenly they said we're going to start showing like the original the original black and white ones and it was mm -hmm. i remember like what a huge deal that was and i think again like we were saying is there were stuff that you knew existed but didn't have access to it and right you know finally yeah. getting to see the honor black and then it takes even longer i mean i don't remember how much later than that was when i got to see the like the first season of the avengers mm -hmm. you know when yeah. you're like wait it, it's Steed and another guy. <laughs> right. it's just, it was just weird. Yeah. But I, you know, and I remember seeing when CBS showed the seventies Avengers, like late night, I think it was like late night Friday nights or something like, so that may have been like right when they had just started. So like, mm. I remember seeing those and now it's sort of funny that Joanna Lumley has this whole other giant career after she was an Avengers girl. Right. You know, since that show was so or so brief. But like we were saying, there's just, you know, you can see just about everything these days that, you know, you only used to read about. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love that when there's always something new to discover. Like um, when I was doing Mission Log with Ken, he talked about how he had a friend who knows that, there are maybe three episodes of the original series that he's never seen. And he likes to kind of keep it that way. It's sort of like, you know, keeping the good whiskey on the shelf for, for a special occasion. But it, he figures that, you know, for a very long time to come, there's always some classic Star Trek that he hasn't seen yet. And that'll be a surprise. It'll be a little revelation for him when he does. And seeing... Only the Avengers with Emma Peel, like, it was a great show. It was a lot of fun. But then learning, oh, wait, there's another one I can watch? Well, well, that that's exciting to realize that there's some sort of yet-to-be-discovered thing for you waiting out there. Um, I felt the same way about um, uh, Patrick McGowan and The Prisoner. Prisoner is an awesome show, and it's only 17 episodes long, so you can knock through it in a long weekend. But then when I found out that it was sort of not really, but kind of you can draw the parallels in your head, uh, the sequel to Danger Man, uh, it was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I had never even heard of that show. 
but I loved Patrick McGowan and I loved exploring more of his character as a spy. So then there was suddenly this other thing to go discover. Yeah, we had talked about doing for the for the website. We're last year at the beginning of the year, we were fishing around to do a rewatch and we were trying to figure what's something that hasn't been done to death. Mm-hmm. And I had started, I I settled on Danger Man. And so, you know, I got, I don't remember how much actually ever got written. So I went through most of the first season. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, it's it's Patrick McGowan, so you sort of know what you're getting. But the sort of subtle differences from the Bond archetype that you get in Danger Man is interesting. The fact that... And this is something McGowan apparently insisted on. There's there was not really very much romance on that show. No, it's like you would have a a damsel in distress that he had to rescue, but it was at by the end it was sort of thanks for your help and I'll see you around. You know, it yeah. wasn't like they you know there was anything left dangling or anything, and. One of the other things that's cool about Danger Man, and I'll mention this to some of the other stuff, the, the later British shows, is it's fun watching 60s ITV spy stuff because there's a pool that they're drawing of actors that they're drawing from that you'll mm-hmm. see over and over again. And you'll see from show to show, which is cool. And then, since this, we're talking about people in the early to mid-60s, you see them go on to to stardom because, you know, they're playing, you know, heavy, the heavy boyfriend of the girl that John Drake has to save in whatever foreign country he's in. And you're right. like, hey, that's a guy that 10 years from now has gone, went on to star on some other show that everybody knows in a way it's like it's like watch it's i get that same way watching mission impossible sure when it's okay i understand that we're going to see theodore bikel and Stephen inhat and people like that but then it's like there's an episode with carol o'connor there's an episode with larry linville you know like in in the late 60s when he's young fresh-faced and you're like oh what what you know, what you're going to become known for. And that's the same thing with, with Danger Man and some of the other ITV shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it was clearly a, a different time in TV production, and ITC is, you know, relatively small, relatively low budget. But even here, you know, with the major studios uh, cranking out stuff, you could just sort of follow the careers of these TV guest star actors, and well, this week it's Star Trek, and uh, next week it's Mission Impossible, and then, uh, well, I did a Hogan's Heroes, and <laughs> I'll end up on Uncle at some point. <laughs> they just jumped from one place to another, and you got a little bit of that through the 80s, and then I, I think it starts to change quite a bit after that, you know? It's not quite as regular as uh, as it was just almost like clockwork back then. One of the one of the shows that I love for this phenomenon uh, is mentioning to people, and it was one that you actually hadn't seen, so I sent you a link to watch it. Was mm-hmm. um, there's a show that people may or may not know. I know uh, a couple of people I know are super fans of it, so they'll love it that we're talking about it now. Mm-hmm. Is there's a British show called Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, which mm-hmm. I don't know if ever was adapted over here, but certainly was remade in the early 2000s, which is funny because that also has a bunch of famous guest stars on it now from then. But yeah. um, the, the premise of the show is there's two guys and they have a detective agency and the pilot, one of them gets killed investigating whatever they're investigating in the pilot episode. And so he becomes a ghost. And he, in classic 60s fashion, he wears a white suit, but he's the <laughs> kind of thing where you know, he can pop in from here to there. He can do things like, you know, classic 60s special effects, move things across the room when people aren't looking or distract people by yelling when there's nobody there. So anyway, so, anyway, so that's right. the premise of the show. 
the episode that I sent you was the aunt or grandmother, I don't remember, of the female lead in the show who is their secretary but was the romantic interest of the guy that died. They, right. She develops um, a gambling uh, a gambling formula. So she, so they go to Monte Carlo to try and win you know, all this money, whatever. You know, you go to, yeah. you're going to Monte Carlo. And then there are some thugs and a casino, and they want to try and figure out how she, what formula she has, and blah 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 blah. But that's all fine and dandy. And then you know, the the ghost uses his powers to whatever, and we end up happy, and the bad guys are caught. Did you notice the three people in particular? Why I sent you this episode? Did you notice who they were? Uh, so it was funny. I, I actually had to go to IMDb because I, I wasn't sure who I was looking at at okay. first, but, but man, you, you buried the lead. You kept talking about this Doctor Who uh, uh, guest star, and it was uh, the Brigadier, um, uh, Nicholas Courtney, who is – I mean, he's great, and he's got this presence no matter what. But, but you buried the lead. Dude, Brian Blessed – is in that a very young Brian Blessed who does not come across as very Brian Blessed. <laughs> no, he's, sure enough. Well, sure for enough, one, it's him. Yeah, for one, he's clean shaven and he's much yeah. thinner and he's yeah. got all of his hair. But it's like the voice is still kind of there. So, you, yeah. yeah, you're watching this episode and you're like, I remember the first time I watched it, I'm like, hey, I think that's Brian Blessed. And then I get to the <laughs> end and then you get to the bad guys and you're like, Wait, that's Nicholas Courtney. That's the yeah. brigadier without him, without his mustache. Yes. Yeah. 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 That that threw me. Yeah. Right. The the voice was. And uh, then was definitely and there, then to yeah. top it all off, they go to the casino, and the Mater D at the casino or whatever the technical term is, the guy that runs the casino, mm-hmm. is Roger Delgado who played the master. Oh, right. Right. With yes. but like but with different facial hair. I, I would say he's got the the little beard, the mustache, and he, and he looks uh, a little more I, I don't know, just a, a little more uh, weary in this. <laughs> well, it's the funny thing that if you read sort of about Delgado's career up until he played the master, that mm-hmm. a lot of his sort of day work was playing Spaniards or people from the Middle East or things like that because he had that complexion. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until he became the master, and unfortunately, you know, he passed away while he was still playing the master. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't that much. You know, it was only a few years after this. But that's the thing that I love about watching those shows. And we also uh, were talking about uh, these ITV shows at the time that were a little later. But there's Department S and Jason King, and. Department S was a show I had never heard about until I stumbled upon it. I thought I mm. knew most of the British ITV spy shows. And then there's this very sort of Mission Impossibly kind of show yeah, where they have to solve mysteries. And you've got, you know, it's very, it's very 70s. It's there's an American guy and a British guy and a French girl. So, you know, you can syndicate the show in a number of places. Uh-huh. And then you've got the one guy who becomes the breakout star, who's Peter Weingard, yeah. who's Jason King, who is this sort of suave mystery writer type. Yep. And very play. It's, it sounds like from what you read about later that it was not a he was not playing against type. I guess it's fair to say. And then he gets a spinoff show where he gets a detective show where he's the main character. Yeah. And I think, but you, yeah, you had mentioned to him when I mentioned that you were like, oh, yeah, I, I know those shows because I'm a big fan of Wine Guards. Oh, he's awesome. I mean, look, he was Clytus and Flash Gordon, and that voice is unmistakable. So that's how I first knew who he was, was from Flash Gordon. And then to, to see him as a younger man, as Jason King, and he's just. Uh, he's fantastic. He first of all, he looks great. They they dress him in these fantastic, really over the top suits, and um, it, it's this sort of 
like, look, a lot, a lot of these shows, um, like you talk about Randall and Hopkirk, that was uh, the episode that I watched was 1969, um, suffers from some very unfortunate hair and fashion choices, I'll say. Um, Jason King made around the same time and a little bit later into the early 70s. And he just somehow is uh, much more magnificent in that world, like the big collars, the big ties and stuff. They really work on him. And he's got this magnificent head of hair and the big, long mustache. Peter Wingard, fantastic in that. It, it is, is clearly a show that plays to his strengths. He is he is very he is very 70s. Yes, he is. Yeah, but 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 in the best ways, like, like not in a, very. Yeah, I was gonna say he's very sort of Burt Reynolds, like not. A, it's like it's almost sort of like if you took the late seventies Burt Reynolds, but when he was Dan, if he was Dan, when when he played Dan August, but he looked like seventies Burt Reynolds. Yeah, you know right. what I mean. He's well. The, yeah. it's funny that. I didn't know this until much later because the first time I was in a way exposed to Weingard, did you mm-hmm. read when you were a kid, did you read the Claremont and Byrne X Men? No, no. Okay. Don't know. Yeah, this is, I'll, I'll I'll send you this stuff later. But anyway, so Claremont I think was a very big fan of like British spy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Because have you ever seen like the when he was writing the thing where he invented the Hellfire Club in the X-Men to make them bad guys and did the thing with them dressing in the S&M outfits, which was all sort of lifted from that one Avengers episode when you've got Emma Peel on the black leather and whatever. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so during this time when Claremont and John Byrne is drawing it, um, they bring back an old 60s villain from an old X-Men villain named Mastermind who has like illusion powers. Mm-hmm. But when they bring him back, cause in the sixties, he sort of looked like he was tall and kind of dumpy with like gray hair and a mustache, but very nondescript looking. Mm-hmm. They bring him back in the seventies and you don't know that he's Mastermind because he has a new identity. And his name is Jason Weingard, and he looks <laughs> and he looks like Peter Weingard. And so these uh, so these are comics from like you know seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, probably. So I remember at the and then eventually he gets defeated, and his illusion goes away, and he stops looking like Peter Weingard, and goes back to looking sort of more like he did in the sixties. So this whole he had been a facade that he was masquerading as somebody else, but I always so once I started watching like the first time I watched Department S, and I see Peter Weingart and his name is Jason King and he looks like that and I'm like, that's where that came from. I had like mm-hmm. I had never had I had never seen it written about, like or anything that I can recall. So that was a great aha moment. Yeah. So that's yeah. And, so that and show he, holds he plays, like a. Uh, he, he plays one of the many number two in The Prisoner. Yeah, like I said, you mm-hmm. see everybody, it's almost, it's like one of those crime scene spider webs on these shows. <laughs> everybody, everybody is interconnected. Yeah, for real. But, but John, I want to thank you very much uh, for coming back to, to do the show. Um, we mentioned, you know, that, that you have Mission Log and Mission Log Live and the other stuff on the Roddenberry Network. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else uh, you want to mention before you go? I, you know, we've been busy cranking out shows there. I'm directly involved with Mission Log, Mission Log Live, and the Trek Files. And then there are uh, a handful of other shows that we've sort of partnered with. And then some other stuff we've been growing in-house. Slowed down, I think, a little bit due to, well, the world changing over the last uh, several weeks. But we're uh, we're on track. Uh, So stay tuned. Go to podcast.roddenberry.com and uh, we'll have some brand new stuff to show off before too much longer, I hope. That's cool. And you guys, I think, as, as I may have mentioned before, you guys are nearing the end of season four of Deep Space Nine. I remember at the beginning, before we go, I remember mm-hmm. 
that when you guys started Deep Space Nine, that you weren't as familiar with Deep Space Nine as you remember as the other shows. Right. But And the fact that, as we said, that it gets a little darker. But now that you're sort of like halfway through Deep Space Nine, does it match up with what you remember? Is, have you discovered more about the show than you were expecting to? I, you know, I'm finding that I am more attached to the characters now uh, because I, I think back when it premiered, that was something that I didn't immediately get hooked on. Um, but I, I think now I'm very comfortable sort of in that world with that cast, with that group of characters. I, I, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of depth and care given to them. Um, I will say that I'm still having a little bit of not it's not a problem, but it, it's sort of a, a challenge presented by the series. You know, Norman and I just recorded an episode the other day, um, Hard Time, where uh, uh, Chief O'Brien is driven to the edge of suicide. And Norman and I both had a difficult time really trying to understand what that episode was trying to do and where does it fit? How does it square with all of the Star Trek that had come before it? Could we at any point imagine anybody on the Enterprise or the Enterprise D driven to that point where they're sitting there with a phaser held under their chins about to disintegrate their heads, you know? And and it's this difficult thing where you go, okay, this is a serious show about serious topics, that has to deal with the 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 good and the difficulty of the human experience. But at the same time, what got us here? <laughs> you know, what got us here where this is happening to one of our characters on Star Trek? So we had not only a good conversation about that, but then for our Patreon supporters, we just sort of let the camera keep rolling. And we, we have chat after the show about the show. And uh, and got to dig a little deeper there as well, so I'm um, I'm very curious to hear what our listeners have to say about that when that comes out. Cool, I will certainly be looking forward to that when it comes up soon. So John, what's, John, once again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, man. Thank you, and we will be back next time. <laughs>